relief factor, pain relief that's natural, pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just $19.95. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. Relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Impressive. Most impressive. See things you people wouldn't believe. You want to talk to God? Let's go see him together. How did you know I had a gun? What do you want? A free lesson in police work? No. Are you okay, pal? I had a rough day on the job. Ah. Are you going home now? I was about to. Well then? You just fulfilled the first rule of law enforcement. Make sure when your shift is over, you go home alive. Here endeth the lesson. Not the best Irish accent in the world, but a seminal scene from a seminal movie, one of my favorites, the legendary Scotsman playing the Irish James Malone, encountering for the first time as a beat cop, Agent Elliot Ness, the Untouchables. This is going to be fun. Chris Coles, my co-host, he is the creator of the YouTube channels, Mr. Reagan and the Alpha Critic. I dearly hope that you love this film quite as much as I do. You know what's interesting about the film The Untouchables? It is such a perfect film. It is such an iconic film. It is such a classic of cinema that when I was growing up, I didn't really appreciate it, I don't think, as much as I should have because at the time, people got to understand, at the time, that this film came out. There were so many great films that came out. You kind of took them for granted a little bit. Like, this film would come on TV sometimes. And, of course, I would watch it because we would all watch it. And everybody quote from it. And everybody knew all the different scenes and stuff. And we, we loved this film. But it was one of those films that was just, like, one of those great films that we had in the 80s. But watching it now, because I haven't seen this film for years, and it's kind of the same story of a lot of the great films that we watch on this uh, on this show, it, it's like I get nostalgic for the time period. I get nostalgic for a time in which great films were kind of ordinary. They would come out so often, these great films, that you just took for granted how amazing these films were. You just didn't really appreciate it. Now, watching back, 
seeing, seeing such amazing performances, seeing such an amazing film, it really feels like, my God, I, I that time period was just, we, we should have appreciated it more at the time, but, you know, it's nice to look back and be able to appreciate it now. Well, those of us who are slightly older did appreciate it. We, we did appreciate it at the time it was happening. For the young whippersnappers, they may not have appreciated the excellence of the 80s. And, of course, you know, this, this is one of the best movies of the period, 1987. Brian De Palma's The Untouchables. But I'm curious, can I just pass that a little bit? Because one of your kind of metrics that I love for all the, the amazing movies we review here is whether or not I want to live in the time period depicted or in the story, the environment being shown. Are you saying that or am I hearing something different that the, the period we underestimated were the 80s themselves and just, I mean, your comment was like, why don't we have films this good right now? Am I, am I getting a, a new spin on your, on your metric? Well, right. I mean, yeah, no, exactly. Like, I, I think in the 1980s, we just got so many great films all the time. The, 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 you know, that was there was a standard that was set that was so high. Yeah. And the filmmakers and the writers and the actors had to live up to that standard that we kind of took those films for granted. And now, because we just don't get films of that caliber anymore, I'm watching this film and it kind of blows you away at just how brilliant they were. I mean, they didn't have any CGI. They didn't have, you know, like we have advanced technologically, but we have regressed, I think, creatively and in, in terms of just the, you know, the precision of the filmmaking. They, I, maybe they're just pumping out too many projects. I'm not really sure. I mean, obviously, there's a lot. It's a lot to do with like DEI. You know, they care more yeah. about the color of your skin than your merit, obviously, that's a huge part of it. Uh, but I think it's more than that. I think that there is an actual, maybe an arrogance or a narcissism where, you know, Hollywood, you know, producers maybe don't just don't recognize talent anymore. I'm just, I'm not sure why it's not, it hasn't increased in, in quality. It's decreased. And But the great thing about that is that we can watch these great films again and appreciate them even more, I think, than I, than I did when I was a kid watching it on television. So let, let's you know, talk about the specific reasons why this is such a great movie. Of course, the writing by David Mamet, legendary, probably the, the greatest script writer we have alive today. Brian De Palma, I'm not in general a Brian De Palma movie fan, but his precision comes across, not just the actors themselves, whether it's Sean Connery, whether it's De Niro, whether it's Costner, and then just visually. I mean, look at these shots from inside the church, the classic Chicago way line or whether it's the first success. He has the Duff raid where, you know, he fails to find the whiskey. And then the first raid that Sean Connery takes him on that's literally, you know, a warehouse of whiskey across the street from the police station. And just, you know, Chicago itself, where they filmed it, it's, it's a character in the movie. So I, I, it's one of these experiences where pick a slice, doesn't matter, production design. The, the Giorgio Armani suits that are made for the movie. Right. The, 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 the accuracy of the Tommy guns in the raid on the Canada border, the lines. I mean, just the, that's the Chicago way. I can't identify here any moment where you go, nah, I wish they had CGI or something. There's, there's no point at which the story yeah. of the Untouchables versus Capone uh, wilts a little bit. 
Yeah, and you know, you made a good point uh, talking about the world that you want to live in, right? The universe of the film that they've created. Obviously, this is a true story. Obviously, you know, uh, Chicago in the 1920s actually did exist. Prohibition did exist. Um, but these characters that are created for the screen, they're not exactly true to life, right? right. They're, they're creations, they're fictional creations to give life to this story, uh, to make us enjoy this film at the time that it was produced. And I, I can say, perfectly honestly, I would love for these men to be my friends yeah. today. Yeah. You know, if I could be friends with these gentlemen, uh, I, it would be, it would be, it would like be life fulfilling in a way because they're all such cool customers. They've all got these, you know, interesting things about them. And uh, you know, Elliot Ness in particular, he's a very good man, right? He's like a Boy Scout, and you really uh, uh, respect him, and you respect all the guys. Obviously, Sean Connery's character, uh, who I think is a sort of a fictional amalgamation of a bunch of different uh, guys, because there were many more Untouchables, I think, in real life than yes. there, there was in this picture. And, and, and none of them were killed. The and none of them were killed. Right, right. They had to add the drama, of course, which I, I think is appropriate. Uh, it, it makes you care a lot about the characters, make you care a lot about what they're doing, raises the stakes, obviously. Um, but you, you, I want to live in this world, despite the fact that it's violent, despite the fact that it's, you know, it was a hard, much harder life than it is today. Um, and these guys, one thing that blew me away watching this is they they act so casually, so natural in the world that they're depicting. Like when he picks up the phone, this is a phone where you have to put, you know, the, this part to your mouth and this part to your ear. Like, you know, it's this ancient type phone, you know, with this clicker thing. There's no dial or anything. It's this ancient phone. And Kevin Costner picks it up like he's been using it his whole life and you buy it, you believe it. Right. And it's such a beautiful uh, era, era and it's, it's such interesting characters. Uh, and I just love the brotherhood. And I, I love the camaraderie, and I love the character. I love the guys, and I want to live in the world. Yeah. Uh, you're so right with everything, whether it's the uh, police box key with the St. Jude medallion, whether it's the gramophone player you have to wind up. None of it looks like they're fish out of water. They are, they are in the 1920s, 1930s, and they make it, they sell it absolutely with no question, without a, any momentary lapse of, oh, I need to suspend my believability here. No, the movie is The Untouchables, Brian De Palma, we're going to dissect it. It's 1987. Sean Connery, Kevin Costner, and so many more. If you enjoy what you hear on our show every Friday, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, whichever platform you prefer. Just plug in my name, Sebastian Gorker, America First. Never leave uh, without giving us a five-star review for your first-time subscriber. And please share the links with your friends. And if you want law and order back, yeah, we don't need any more crazy Chicago politics. Let's get President Trump back in the White House. Fly the flag. I stand with 45. Get yours and so many more America First items at SebGorkaStore.com. That's S-E-B-G-O-R-K-A, SebGorkaStore.com. And you can support him directly at DonaldJTrump.com. That's DonaldJTrump.com. Greetings, this is Dr. Sebastian Gorka from the Midas Gold Group War Room. The MAGA veterans at Midas point out that the Federal Reserve note does not belong to you. It belongs to the Federal Reserve Bank, while the federal debt doesn't belong to the Federal Reserve Bank. 
it belongs to you. This is your wake-up call to what the Midas Gold Group veterans believe the central bank and government are trying to do. A controlled demolition of our current system with a central bank digital currency to take complete and utter control of our transactional freedoms. A literal digital concentration camp replete with social sanctions. Protect yourself. Turn this wake-up call into a phone call and look into the opportunities that gold can provide you as a way to diversify your investments. Call veteran-owned Midas Gold Group today, 855-322-GOLD, or go to MidasGoldGroup.com. That's 855-322-GOLD, or just go to MidasGoldGroup.com. Always faithful, Midas Gold Group, MAGA and proud of it. What is that? Mr. Nets, you're an educated man. Let me pay you the compliment of being blunt. There is large... A large and popular business, which you are causing dismay. Why don't you just cross the street and let things take their course? Can you come in here, please? In Roman times, when a fellow was convicted of trying to bribe a public official, they would cut off his nose and sew him in a bag with a wild animal and throw that bag in the river. You tell your master that we must agree to disagree. You're making a mistake. Yeah, well, I've made them before. I'm beginning to enjoy them. You fellows are untouchable. Is that the thing? No one can get to you? Yeah. You took a pawn. Hey, everyone can be gotten to. And I'll see him in hell. A little bit of issues with the ADR there and the matching of the uh, words to, to the lip movements. But I love that scene, Chris, because... When Kevin Costner picks up that envelope of cash, which is $2,000, which is his annual wage as a treasury agent, and he's being promised it by Al Capone every week, and he flings it at that alderman, he looks angry. That, you know, that, that righteous indignation, when, and then the phrase, oh, you're untouchables, is that who you are? You've got to help me here as an immigrant to this nation. This whole movie is predicated on one insane thing. And I'm a teetotaler, have been since my parents passed. How on God's green earth did Americans think there wouldn't be a problem by banning alcohol with the Falstead Act in 1920? How did that happen in America? Explain that. You were born here. I don't get it. Well, I wasn't born back then, so I don't quite <laughs> understand. Well, I mean, you you have different religious movements. Yeah. You have different time periods where people, you know, they, they're they're moralists and they want to make the world a better place. So it's it's you have this all the time where you get this sort of overreaching uh, regulation of things. Uh, it, it almost always ends in disaster. You know, I, I mean. I, I'm not, uh, you know, a pure libertarian. You know, I do think that we should have some laws against doing certain kinds of drugs and things like that, and uh, because they, it is so detrimental to people. And yes, alcohol is an incredibly detrimental drug for sure. Um, it's but it's something that is so ingrained in just about every culture on earth. Yeah. It's such a, an important part of, you know, our history, um, you know, not just as Europeans, but as uh, Christians. It's part of the, you know, Christian rituals. Uh, I mean, it's, it's in the Bible, Christ turning water in, into wine. You know, it's such an integral part of every, you know, every culture, everybody's life, that it's something that it's just almost impossible to, to just get rid of completely. Um, and, you know, they tried and it didn't work, but a valiant effort. And I've had I've actually read somewhere that, in fact, you know, a lot of the effects of alcohol that you see on society did diminish significantly right. during prohibition. Right. So, you know, maybe it was a good thing. 
I don't think it could happen again, but, uh, you know, it was worth a try. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Well, when you can make beer and wine quite easily uh, in your basement, it's rather a problematic issue, especially when it's legal in Canada and they were shipping it. Who was shipping it? That man played by, of course, Robert De Niro, Al Capone. Here's that moment. Never happened in real life. Elliot Ness never met Al Capone, even though, you know, they were antagonists. But the scene in the hotel, which is actually the, uh, I think it's the Roosevelt University in Chicago. Let's play that uh, epic scene. Come out here, Capone. You want to fight? You want to fight you and me right here? That's it. Come on. Somebody, you afraid to come out from behind your men? You afraid to stand up for yourself? You want to do it now? No. You want to yeah. go out now? It's me. It's me. It's me. Not this way. You got nothing. There's not a lot of talk in a bed. You're here because you got nothing. You got nothing in court. You don't got the bookkeeper. You got nothing. Nothing! And if you were a man, you would have done it now. You don't got a thing, you punk! Sean Connery saves his buddy Elliot Ness from getting iced by Capone's thugs there. Um, I'm not a fan of De Niro's politics, but it is quite an amazing performance. One thing that, that shocks you when you, when you do a little bit of research about the real Al Capone... Do you realize that when he took over Chicago, where he killed all of his opponents, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Capone was in his 20s. This film is set at Mm. his height when he was 30 years old. I find that quite stunning, Chris. You know, I realized something when I was younger, just thinking about criminal organizations, gangs and this sort of thing. And it, it occurred to me that I think that the guy who was the, 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 the most powerful, the, the, the boss, he would always have to be the one that was the scariest, right? He'd have to be the guy that everybody else knew either had control of the tough guys in the gang or was the toughest guy in the gang. And either way, he had to be able to do what other people were unwilling to do. And they showcase that in this film when he takes a baseball bat to the head of one of his men to show to all the other guys, this is what happens when you fail. Uh, I murder you with a baseball bat in front of everyone. And so you see those little moments in the film. You know, I wouldn't have thought that De Niro would have been the best guy to cast for this just because he's such an iconic actor. He's such a legendary actor. Even at this point, he was so well-known. His face was so well-known to try to put some prosthetics on him and make him look a little bit like Al Capone and have him do this character. It just – I don't know. I don't like casting such recognizable actors in such recognizable roles. But in this case, I think it does kind of work just because – 
you know, he just has that ability to evoke that uh, that sense of uh, anger and and a little well, bit thuggery. Crazy I mean, himself. I mean, he, he, and, he and is it works really well. He, he, it's the quintessence of thuggery. He is a thug, and and to be honest, yeah. I, I don't I don't see yeah. myself as squeamish. I can watch horror movies; they don't ex- they don't excite me. But this scene, the baseball bat scene, yeah. for the last twenty thirty years, I'd always fast forward through it. It's like it's too visceral. It's too real when the blood pools on the table from the aerial shot. And by the way, this isn't fictional. Mamet didn't make this up. Capone used a baseball bat on two of his lieutenants, uh, you know, beat them up with the baseball bat and then afterwards had them shot. So it's slightly different from the way it's played in the movie. But, you know, this is the reality and this man sells it. The movie is The Untouchables. If um, one, one hour of fun with me and Chris a week is not enough or 15 hours of radio on America First, how about this suggestion? Join us for July 4th. It's our Patriots Alaska cruise to the most beautiful state of the Union. I think that's fair to say. I've never been, but I'm excited. I've never been on a cruise. Just you, me, Katie, some of our Salem MAGA buddies, and the beauty of Alaska. June 29th to July 6th, we've had already 200 cabins booked on this beautiful liner. Check out the amazing itinerary. Reserve yours today at sebgorka.com. That's the Patriots Alaska Cruise. If you want to meet fellow Patriots, recharge your batteries and get ready to take back this nation from those who are trying to destroy it. It's up to us, God willing. Please go to sebgorka.com. S-E-B-G-O-R-K-A, sebgorka.com. And the Patriots Alaska cruise banner if you enjoy what we do here stay up to date follow me on social media uh, chris is at uh, mr reagan usa on twitter you can find me under seb gorker or sebastian gorker on all the usual platforms don't forget you can watch us this is a movie review on your roku your fire sticker on the salem news channel app and for unique content written by me unique analyses and access to me check out my Substack, sebastiangorka.substack.com that's sebastiangorka.substack.com Did you know that 84% of New Year's resolutions fail in the first six weeks? That's got me thinking about PhD weight loss and nutrition and why it was a success for me. Why I haven't gained one pound of my 42-pound weight loss back. Why Jeff, my producer, decided to start the program. Most people blame their failure on a lack of time, motivation, and a loss of zeal. PhD makes it simple. It doesn't take a lot of extra time. They are masters of motivation. You have a team of coaches by your side the whole time, and you don't lose your zeal because every week you make great strides, so you stay excited. Do something different this year and call PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition, 864-644-1900 to get started or online at myphdweightloss.com. Don't do this alone. The number, 864-644-1900, myphdweightloss.com. If you walk through this door now, you're walking into a world of trouble. And there's no turning back, you understand? Yes, I do. Good. Give me that action. Get your hands in the air! Nobody move! This is a raid! Everybody in the... What are you doing here? All this stuff is impounded. 
You're all under arrest. Hey, this isn't right. Hey, this is no good. You got a warrant. Sure, here's my warrant. Oh, oh. How do you think he feels now? Better or worse? Just the naturalism of the dialogue. Uh, this is no good. Yeah, do you think he feels better now? The first successful raid for the Untouchables with uh, Malone leading the way. Uh, if you enjoy what we do here, making movies great again every Friday, support those who make it possible. Great patriots, friends of President Trump like Mike Lindell. You heard what Fox did to him. They're completely gone rhino. They've banned him as their biggest advertiser because, hey, I guess that's what Paul Ryan wants. Let's have his back. Don't buy that Chinese garbage on Amazon. He's got more than 200 products on his website, Made in America by Americans for you. Get up to two-thirds off with my code. And because of that insane Fox decision, Mike, because you're listening to me and watching our show, he's going to give you free shipping. However much you order, however big it is, if you buy one of his mattresses, it'll ship for free. Call them up. Talk to a human being. 800-829-8468, MyPillow.com. That's 800-829-8468, MyPillow.com. But you've got to use the secret code G-O-R-K-A. So, Chris, one of the key things about this movie is is just the genuineness of the way men relate to each other. I think the epitome of this is when when Malone is trying to recruit new recruits, goes to the shooting range, and meets somebody who he doesn't believe is called John Stone. Play cuts. Where are you from, Stone? From the south side. Stone. George Stone. That's your name? What's your real name? That is my real name. Now, what was it before you changed it? Giuseppe Petri. Jeez, I knew it. That's all you need, one thieving wop and the team. (laughs) What's that you say? I said that you're a lying member of a no-good race. It's much better than you, you stinking Irish pig. (laughs) Oh, I like him. Yeah, I like him too. You just joined the Treasury Department, son. Just the great acting, the great lines, and just this verity. Men who have to, like, tussle with each other, insult each other, and say... Yeah, I kind of like you, Chris. Yeah, I, I mean, the the brotherhood of these men, like I said before, is one of the great things. I often talk about how there's this father-son dynamic in films uh, that, that we've kind of lost these days. And they have that in this as well uh, with Sean Connery's character and the Elliot Ness character. Uh, yeah, there's just so – we don't have films so much anymore that are just men doing masculine things. This is sort of a fantasy fulfillment for men – We don't get that stuff anymore, and I think we need to bring it back. This is, I mean, I just loved watching this. It was a a great, uh, great time for me. So who's responsible for that great theme in that movie? Maybe we should ask him. Pulitzer Prize winner, surprise guest, author of Speed the Plow, Glengarry Ross, filmmaker, patriot. We are so excited to have him back on the show. The one, the only, the writer of The Untouchables, David Mamet. Welcome, Mr. Mamet. 
Thank you so much. So it's great, great being there. Great being there with you. So uh, would you address Chris's point here? Was this one of your... Did, when you sit down, is it about great drama and just great drama and storytelling? Or is there an agenda? Because this, this is a movie that's about men being men and fighting for each other and the truth. You, I know you can't educate us on, on one little discussion about one of the greatest movies out there. But when you sit down, when you're given this kind of mission... Where do you begin? Well, I'm a gag writer. You know, I was my, it's uh, one of those things which is true but uninteresting. When I was seven, eight, nine years old, my mother always used to say, David, why must you dramatize everything? Because I always dramatized everything. It's my nature. It might be because uh, my people have been Jews for 6,000 years, and that's what we do. We talk in stories. We talk in parables. We talk in jokes. We communicate by the punchline of jokes, leaving out, leaving out the joke. So that's what I do is I sit down and I make up dialogue. That the Drama is telling a story through dialogue, right. right? The misuse of drama is to use the dialogue to narrate, to say, let me tell you a few things about myself. That's terrible drama, and that's almost all the drama that you'll see. Or that the movie is narrating, so well, you see so-and-so is a homosexual or they're a black person or they're a woman of color, so you understand their situation. That's bullshit, Right. It doesn't make any difference. We adult, we identify with the hero as soon as the relates go down. It doesn't matter what color they are, what sex they are, what gender they are, whatever in the world that may be. We get it. We're going to watch the hero because the hero is ourself. When we overspecify the hero, it's no longer ourself, right? Yeah, yeah. Somebody with a wooden leg or somebody who's the victim of racism or somebody who has cancer. Now, the, the, the new trend for woke non-drama has been around a long time. When I was a kid coming up, it was uh, um, illness plays and illness movies. So-and-so is deaf, so-and-so is blind, so-and-so blah, blah. So that's, 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 in effect, emotional pornography. Just saying, oh, let's weep over, over the, the cause of those poor unfortunates. But this is both cheap and kind of immoral because you really aren't weeping over the cause of an unfortunate. Because if there was someone who was challenged in front of you, the godly thing would be to help him right. or her. Right. So you aren't, and to put your sympathy to one side, because they don't need your sympathy. They might need your assistance, which is an act of, of, of courtesy and decency, but they don't need your sympathy. So these, the woke drama has its beginnings in illness drama. It's the same thing. It's, it's stuff written by somebody who can't write, uh, for for somebody they can't understand, and that person they can't understand is called the audience. Well, I, this Thank is not so this is not woke drama. This is the antithesis of woke drama. <laughs> and and before I I know Chris has got a question or two. There are moments in this movie where the lie. I mean, we'll we'll play the the church discussion and the Chicago way in a second. But there are just these these short moments where there's such a genuineness to the dialogue. And, and maybe it's just, you know, innate talent. But I'm thinking, for example, when, when Niddy is hanging off the tower at the end and he looks up and he smirks at Ness because he thinks Ness isn't going to harm him and he says, harass me, Mr. Treasury Man. Or there's that moment he squealed like a pig that triggers Ness to push him off the top of the tower. Or, or, or even if it's just... The end, where, you know, the reporter asks Ness, what are you going to do if they repeal prohibition? And he says, well, I'll have a drink. 
is good dialogue reflexes of what you hear? Where does it begin to write dialogue that just stays with the audience forever? Well, you know, Sandy Koufax was the greatest pitcher ever lived. And I think he was the first guy to be recorded throwing over 100 miles an hour. And he sat down one day making um, kinesthetic diagrams, stick figures of how to throw a ball that fast, using your starting with your toes and your ankles and your calves and your and your tushy, and then when you turn your right waist in, and then the position of the arms and when to bring the forearm down and when to bring the wrist down. That's all very great. He understood that. No one's going to learn how to throw a fastball from re- reading that diagram. Right. Makes sense to Sandy Koufax. Right. Doesn't make sense to anybody who's not Sandy Koufax. <laughs> but it's. So it's the same thing here. I was born with a with a uh, the gift of laughter and the sense that the world was mad. Uh, do you, you know that story? Ex- this guy called Ex- Raphael Sabatini. Raphael Sabatini wrote a a thing called Scaramouche, and it, he wrote it. I think nineteen twenty. It was a huge, huge bestseller. So an English guy, his name was Raphael Sabatini, about this great swordsman and great jokester. And somebody gave a building to Harvard, and they said, "Oh, you get the building to Harvard." You get to put whatever you want over the door. So he put over the door. So some it might be Elliot House in Harvard Live. He was born with the gift of laughter and the sense that the world was mad. So that's that's one of my things. So I think I was too. You know, right. I, I, I tried. One. I tried to get him to give away the crown jewels. I, I failed. Are you tired of not getting a good night's sleep? Well, my friend, Mike Lindell has created the perfect solution. He didn't just stomp out the pillow. He also created the Giza Dream Bed Sheets. Made from the world's best cotton called Giza, these sheets are ultra soft and breathable, yet extremely durable. And now, for a limited time, you can get 50% off the Giza Dream Sheets with prices starting as low as $29.98 in a variety of sizes and colors and have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio square and use promo code G-O-R-K-A at checkout. You can also find deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow 2.0 mattress topper and the MyPillow towel sets. Don't wait any longer to get the best sleep of your life. Call 800-829-8468 or go to MyPillow.com now and use promo code Gorka. That's 800-829-8468 or MyPillow.com, promo code G-O-R-K-A. What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife. You pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's how you get Capone. If I could tell you the number of times I've said that with my good buddies, that's the Chicago way. Chris, well, uh, Chris, qu- questions for the, 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 the mind behind this movie. You know, it, it was great to talk about dialogue because there is so much great dialogue in the, in the picture. What's interesting to me is that you started as a playwright, right, writing for the theater. And in my experience, and you may disagree with this entirely, it's, it's very difficult for playwrights, oftentimes, to then become a screenwriter, right? Because they think it's a very different discipline in many ways, right? Playwrights tend to write in a very stylized way. 
screenplays, although they have to be a little bit stylized, tend to be a little bit more naturalistic. At least that's how the actor tends to, you know, read the lines out. And I'm curious, when you transitioned from writing stage plays to screenplays, were you sitting there and you, were you thinking like, okay, I've got to figure out how to write this into a movie? Or were you already writing that way for the stage and it just translated well into cinema? Because you're because you're one of the few stage play writers that really were you were able to transition to film, and I don't think that's all that common. No, it's not because the two completely different disciplines. It's like if you can make a ship in a in a and put it in a bottle, you have to know something about wood, and you have to know something about string, and you have to know something about construction. Those skills also come into play when you're building a house, but um, the basic skills of how does it work what tools do I need are the same. But after that, it's very different building a house and a building a ship in a bottle. So if the basic skills of writing a play and writing a movie come down to what does the audience perceive? It's all about the audience. You, you, and the way you learn that is sit in a room with them and watch the audience. When you watch them go to sleep during your right. favorite scene. And you have to sit there and, and, and shame. You learn, oh Jesus Christ, because if they don't like it, you don't eat. So now we're in a we're in a situation where you have uh, eons of length and um, uh, battalions of people writing garbage to, <laughs> to be top loaded because no one sits with the audience. And the idea is that you control the means right. of production. You don't have to plead the audience. You say, here's what it is. Take it or leave it. Yeah. So uh, you know, uh, and the other thing is, you don't need dialogue to write a movie. I'm going to prove it to you. Were you ever on an airplane and your television was turned off, but you were looking at the screen of the person in front of you? Of course you were. Sure. You could sure, follow yeah, that movie perfectly. You follow it perfectly. You don't need to hear it. Dialogue is great if you can write it. That's fine. If you can't write. <laughs> Nope, we lost you there for a second. Well, I, th I think... Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I think... Yeah, he's frozen. Is he frozen? Yeah, yeah let, I think let, one let, of my let, favorite let, scenes... Let's let's actually play the scene that we're playing as B-roll, you know, with, without the dialogue. We actually have it with the dialogue. It's a beautiful I was piece. literally going to mention that scene. It's a beautiful piece of writing. It's, uh, they, they want to have the bookkeeper explain the codes. How do they do it? This is how Sean Connery as Agent Malone does it. Hey, come on, dude. On your feet. I need you to help me to translate this book, huh? And I'm not going to ask you a second time. I'm going to count to three. Well, what's the matter? Can't you talk with a gun in your mouth? One. Two. <laughs> a little bit of comedy yeah, of course the guy he already he shot is already dead but the guy they're trying to squeeze the information out of doesn't know that and then the canadian mounted police officer says i do not approve of your methods and this time elliot gets it and they both look back, Connery and Elliot, and say, you're not from Chicago. Now, that's good writing, right, Chris? Oh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, all I want to know is how a person comes up with that scene. 
Because that's, I mean, it's literally one of the best written scenes, I think, in movie history. It's one of those scenes that everyone remembers. In fact, if you remember nothing else from an Untouchables, you remember this <laughs> moment because it's such a profound uh, a scene. And like the ability to write a scene that everyone remembers, I don't know. I don't know what that feels like. I don't know if people, I don't know if a great writer does that, not think, not really realizing it's going to be an iconic scene, or if they do know that it'll be an iconic scene. How do you come up with it? Do you know that it's a winner when you write it? I, I don't know. These are questions that I don't have answers for. Right. We're going to try and get uh, Mr. Mamet back from uh, his location in California. But in the meantime, let's just talk about some of the visuals. We've got the raid in Canada. We, we've got um, the baseball scene. We've Oh, my gosh. So here we have, I didn't know this at the time. For me, it was just a stunningly beautiful moment or a, a, a scene and that's in the train station actually filmed in this train station in chicago the the shootout to capture the bookkeeper before he escapes that's actually based it's an homage to sergey eisenstein's battleship potemkin movie the uh, the the russian film the black and white film that has a scene on the steps of odessa there are these huge staircase steps up to the city of odessa and this was the Palmer's um, homage. Chris, I timed this. This is a seven-minute scene. And for at least five yeah. and a half minutes, all they do is they just, they just ratchet up the tension. And, and then the ultimate release yeah. after this, b bullets flying everywhere, innocent bystanders being killed, and then Giuseppe Petri, Joe Stone, catches the pram with the baby on his knee, holding yep. the thug in his sights and that moment of release and, and Elliot Nestor says to him have you got him I've got him take him boom I mean come on it's classic iconic boom. Chris oh yeah it's a perfect scene you know what's it, you know okay I, I I want this to be a love fest because I love the film we've got the the great David Mamet here but I have to be honest, the brutal truth, that's what I, I love. I love the ugly truth, not the beautiful lie. And for me, and people may disagree with this, there is only one flaw in this film. What? And it's not a flaw you would expect because it's, yeah, because it's one of the greatest, uh, greatest uh, people in the film industry, in, in the history of the industry, a, a, a genius. But I'm not super thrilled with the, the, uh, the score, what? I did not Met love Enya the score for this film. Are you yeah. kidding me? What? I know, I know. I love the Why? man. I think Explain. He's a genius, but Explain. I didn't. I don't. Too much saxophone. I think it's just <laughs> there was a weird jazzy. I think he was trying to make it sound Chicago-y. Yeah. But it just sounded like this. It kind of sounded dated, like '80s kind of. And you know, but the film set in the '20s, so I don't know. It just didn't really work for me. I just felt like, man, a, a better score would have made this film so much better. Uh, but Eric, uh, I'm Eric, curious Eric. if Mamet. We'll, we'll, we'll ask Mr. Mamet. Uh, Eric, I need to know uh, your response to Chris Coles uh, saying that uh, Ennio Morricone <laughs> performed badly here. I, I could not disagree more. Ennio Morricone is easily the second greatest <laughs> film composer in history, only behind the great John Williams. I mean, so many other great movies yeah, like The really Thing, true. you know, my favorite movie of all time. But the soundtrack here, from that opening score in, during the credits, you know, just mm. with the piano keys over and over again, I, I love every bit of this soundtrack. Stop. Never stop fighting till the fight is done. What do you say? What do you say? 
I said, never stop fighting till the fight is done. What? You heard me, Capone. It's over. Get out. You're nothing but a lot of talking a bit. Here ended the lesson. Here endeth the lesson, and that's where the movie ends, echoing his lost mentor, James Malone. All right, uh, last thoughts before we raid it. Uh, Cost a paltry $25 million, which today is just pathetic. Uh, Made $160 million, very successful. And uh, four uh, nominations in the Academy. Sean Connery won a Best Supporting Actor. Uh, There was going to be a remake just a few years ago with Antoine Fuqua. Nothing came of that. Not a remake, sorry, a prequel that would discuss the rise of Capone. Uh, Before we bring back Mr. Mamet, I've got a couple of questions I know you have. We have to rate all of our movies uh, that we review. Chris, you do it in terms of how a modern audience would like it. Uh, I do it in the galaxy of great movies. We always rate it out of 10. I think, um, what what is the unit of measure this time? How about um, police call box keys? Is that good? I knew you were going to say I literally knew you were going to say that. I was <laughs> going to say Tommy guns, but yeah. Tom, we, we can, can have Tommy back, guns. We can, we can have call box keys Tommy with St. Jude. What is your rating out of 10 for the movie The Untouchables? Well, you know what? Uh, we got uh, Mamet here. What the hell else am I supposed to do, Seb? <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be. It's got to be ten out of ten. Come on. I mean, it is one of the great films. Yeah. I did love every single moment watching this. If I'm honest, uh, yeah, it's it's a beautiful film. Okay. I mean, I think that when the guy falls from the from the rooftop, there's a little bit of maybe like blue screeny stuff that didn't look great. But other than that, it was a, an absolutely perfect film, and it's got to be 10 out of 10, doesn't it? I cannot, cannot gainsay that, even in the galaxy of all movies, absolute 10 out of 10. 10 St. Jude medallions out of 10. All right, Mr. Mamet, do we have you back? I seem to be here. Okay, we, 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 we are glad that you are not an AI, you are not a meme. Last few questions. Um, first, what kind of uh, screenwriter are you? Because some screenwriters go on the set, they're part of the production. Are you the type that delivers the masterpiece and then hands it over to the director? What was the Untouchables like for you as, as the process of making? Well, I, you know, my, my deal has always been... There's, I'll make it be two ways, right? Don't pay me anything and leave me the heckle. Oh, pay me a lot, I'll write you the best script that I can, and you're going to hate it. Because the script is written for the two things. It's written for the actors and for the audience. And nobody ever liked my movies in Hollywood except the actors and the audience. Producers hate it because they don't read like what they think a movie should read like. What movies read like here is when he comes into the room, you see in his eyes that he's a guy who's been around the block. And not just this block, but a lot of blocks. Oh, maybe a block like yours. He's the kind of guy who, when he tells you a joke, you laugh. You don't laugh out of polite. Okay, this is how a movie... But you can't take a picture of that. No. So since you can't take a picture of that, why is it a screenplay? The answer is it's not. It's, it's, It's a romance novel written for some idiots... Uh, in the development process, uh, sitting in, a, in in an office somewhere. All right. Um, I, I promised I'd mention it. Uh, he's still writing the latest. We have to have him back to discuss it at length. Is Everywhere and Oink Oink. That's uh, David Mamet's late, latest book, Everywhere and Oink Oink, an embittered, dyspeptic, and accurate report of 40 years in Hollywood. I think you heard a little soup son of it there. Chris, uh, last question for Mr. Mamet. 
Yeah, you know, I want to know what you think about The Untouchables, because that's the film we're covering here. You are a great director, not just a great writer, but you didn't always direct all of your films. This is one of the films that was passed on to another director. And I'm curious if you, having watched this film, were happy with the final product. Wow. Well, I was, yeah, this film, except that Brian De Palma uh, interpolated the Odessa Steps sequence from Battleship Pontep Potemkin. Yeah. Is it Battleship Potemkin? Yeah. Uh, Battleship, uh, Battleship uh, Potemkin, yeah. Potemkin. Okay. So I thought that that was kind of, uh, I'm not going to say it was a cheapy, uh, uh, cheesy piece of garbage on his part. Far be that for me, but I didn't <laughs> like it. But the, the other thing is at the end of the film, which I really loved, was after uh, he said, I think I'll have a drink, which is a pretty good tagline. Then I wrote, a crawl comes up over the screen, and it says, uh, the, repeal of the, 19, uh, the repeal of the 18th Amendment in 1933 repeal uh, uh, consigned um, prohibition to history. But the disrespect for law and the organized crime created by prohibition are with us to this day. I thought, that's a great line to get out on. And what that does is it takes... I think I'll have a drink, which we think, oh, that's good. But then you come back once again and give the audience what I thought was a little bit of a treat. But uh, De Palma didn't didn't chose to, to, to. I don't know if you can read. Uh, that might be the problem. Um, <laughs> next question. I think I think we're out. I just want to. I, I can't. This isn't a form of a question. It's just a compliment because I didn't realize this until many years later. One of our favorite TV shows was The Unit, which is, of course, about the guys across the fence at Bragg, which you not only, you know, you produced it as well as, you know, wrote it. It is your baby. So I'd love to get you back to talk about uh, Everywhere and Oink Oink and The Unit as well. Would you be open to that, Mr. Mamet? Oh, I, I'd like nothing better. I had the time of my life working on The Unit. Thank you. Good. All right, Chris, are we done? 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. We've just got to pick next, uh, oh. next week's film. Oh, yes. I chose The Untouchables, so now it's your choice. What is next Friday's treat going to be? By, by the way, Mr. Mamet, I had Untouchables next on my list as well. <laughs> <laughs> Bizarrely, I literally did. It was the weirdest coincidence. So this is all just meant to be, I guess. But I'm going to pick a film. I don't know if you're going to love it, but I'm here in Indonesia, and the climate is somewhat similar to this film. It's a sequel. I don't know if you like it that much. It's it's, but it's an interesting movie. I I love it. It's one of my all time favorites, and I think that we need to cover it at some point. So we're going to do it. And I just decided, it's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh, fun! The dark, the dark sequel to Raiders. It shall one. be done. It yeah. shall be done. Mister Mamet, God bless you. Thank you very much. The book is, of course, everywhere. And oink oink, get it right now. We've been making movies great again with my co-host Chris Coles. Follow him on the Mister Reagan channel on YouTube as well as the Alpha Critic. You've been listening to America First. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, keep your head on a swivel. Watch your six. Hold the line. Never give up. Never give in. And stay frosty. brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The world will little note or long remember what we say here, but
but it can never forget what they did here. I have a dream. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people... Is America First with Sebastian Gorka. Breaking news. Nobody has read the 90-page judgment. It has just been released. The 45th President of the United States has been held liable in the civil fraud trial in New York. It is a judgment of the first instance. Of course, it will be appealed by the president's team. But they will never, ever give up until he is back in the White House. Welcome, dear friends. I'm Sebastian Walker, former strategist to the 45th president of the United States, and this is America First. What is that decision in New York? What do the cases in Georgia, the January 6th case, what do all of the uses of the judicial system against President Trump, starting with the raid on Mar-a-Lago, his private residence, by armed FBI agents. What has that got to do with a gulag prison in the Russian Federation? may seem like a strange question, but it's not. It's not. There is an individual called Alexei Navalny, who on a video conference call less than 48 hours ago, was a healthy 47-year-old, albeit in prison in the Arctic Circle in a concentration camp, but he looked healthy. The next day, he was found dead, reported today by Russian authorities. Who is he, and why does it matter? It matters because the way he was treated is exactly the same way that the judicial system is being used by the regime of Joe Biden here in America. In response to the news, and to put it all into context for the next nine months, our good friend Paul Kengor, the editor-in-chief of the U.S. Spectator and professor and center director at Grove City College, has written a piece. It's up on my Twitter feed, my Truth Social, my Facebook, and I'd just like to share a few lines from our good friend Paul's analysis. 47-year-old Alexei Navalny has perished in a brutal Arctic concentration camp called Polar Wolf. Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky in 1920 first used the phrase concentration camp to describe their Soviet system well before Adolf Hitler used the term in Germany 10 years later. Interesting that the Russians, the Russians used the term concentration camp 
a decade before Hitler. The death in the polar wolf penal colony conjures up so many other victims, their names, their images from the Russian past and present. Speaking of Lenin and Trotsky and the Bolsheviks, one thinks of their bayoneting of another Alexei, the young haemophiliac heir to the Romanov throne. The Bolsheviks murdered that young boy and his sisters and his entire family in their house of special designation in Yekaterinburg in July 1918. The whole royal family just bayoneted. After that, Lenin and then his successor, Joseph Stalin, implemented the vast gulag system throughout Siberia. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the greatest of Soviet dissidents, who somehow managed to survive Siberia, called it the Gulag Archipelago in his classic book. Countless millions of innocents perished in the Gulag Archipelago. The late Hoover Institution historian Arnold Beichmann, who contributed to the American Spectator, once estimated that upward of 20 million Soviet citizens perished in the Gulag under Stalin alone in the 1930s. 20 million. The Holocaust was 6 million Jews. More recently, under Vladimir Putin, a man who learned his tactics in the KGB in the 1980s, one can think of the 2006 death of Alexander Litvinenko, one of the earliest Putin purges of a dissident, and one of the earliest telltale signs that the new Russian president was a thug. In the case of Litvinenko, he was killed with a polonium-210 poisoning, radioactive isotope put into his tea. The Litvinenko death evoked memories of the infamous umbrella assassin, the Bulgarian secret services, and how they would kill their dissidents, one of them, Georgi Markov, living in London, killed by a ricin pellet injected into his leg from a KGB-designed murder umbrella. Communist thuggery has long been about precisely this, death, death, death. So, it's strange, is it not, that we have conservatives who think Russia's a nice place, and so is Putin. After his interview with the president, the former KGB colonel, Tucker Carlson was invited to the World Government Summit. A strange place to go. I've never been invited to the World Government Summit, where he had this to say about... Moscow and how nice it is. Cut 16. The average person cares as much about abstractions as about the concrete reality of his life. And if you can't use your subway, for example, as many people are afraid to in New York City because it's too dangerous, you have to sort of wonder, like, isn't that the ultimate measure of leadership? And that's true. By the way, it's radicalizing for an American to go to Moscow. I didn't know that. I've learned it this week. To Singapore, to Tokyo, to Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Because these cities, no matter how we're told they're run and on what principles they're run, are wonderful places to live. 
that don't have rampant inflation, where you're not going to get raped. Yeah, you you won't get raped uh, on the subway in Moscow. Uh, Neither would that happen in North Korea or in Munich uh, in 1939 under the regime of a certain little Austrian corporal called Adolf Hitler. Is that what conservatives believe in? That we don't have crime? Or do we believe in not having crime, but also not having a state that is the criminal? Because let's be clear, Alexander Navalny was killed because he was a campaigner against corruption and a political activist who posed a threat to President Putin because he spoke the truth about his regime. Surely, if you don't approve of what is being done to President Trump today in New York and next week in Washington and then the week after in Fulton County, Atlanta, how can you agree that the same tactics, albeit more aggressive, used against Russian patriots in Russia, that's fine? Because nobody urinates on the subway. Yeah, I know I've got baggage. My father was arrested and tortured and given a life sentence by a secret police regime in a communist nation. But guess what? I don't care if your family never suffered under communism. It's still wrong. If you like Putin, then you'll approve of what they're doing to President Trump here because the tactics are the same. I'm Sebastian Gorka. This is America First. It's Second Amendment Friday. We will be joined by Congressman Lee Zaldi, my former White House colleague, uh, Boris Epstein, uh, Jim Carafano of the Heritage Foundation, and our good friend, Chris Coles. Never miss any of our deep dives. Make sure you are, uh, you are subscribed to the podcast, whichever platform you prefer. And if you want President Trump back, if you want real conservatism in America, safety and security, check out all the America First gear at sebgorkastore.com and support him at donaldjtrump.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.